Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome to episode 18 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. And today I'm joined by Dr. Norman Robillard, who's a PhD and founder of the Digestive Health Institute and is a leading gut expert. He's a microbiologist, the author of the Fast Tracked Digestion book series and publisher of the Fast Tracked Diet mobile app. He's the creator of the drug and antibiotic-free fast-tracked diet for functional gastrointestinal disorders, SIBO, and related conditions. The fast-tracked diet has been endorsed by the New York Times bestseller co-author Dr. Michael Eads, GI surgeon Dr. Alan Hu, and many certified nutritionists and healthcare providers. On today's show, we delve deep into the fast-tracked diet, why he developed it, how it's used, how you can use it, and all the wonderful benefits from lowering the fermentation potential of the foods you're consuming. I hope you enjoy today's episode, episode 18 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. Dr. Norm Robillard, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the Healthy Gut Podcast today. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. One of the reasons why I've got you on the show is that you are the creator of the Fast Track Diet, which is a really wonderful system and, and can be so beneficial to people suffering from small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO as, um, or SIBO, depending on where you are in the world and how you pronounce it. And I'd love for you to talk about how you came to be um, the creator of this uh, um, diet protocol that um, – many people now follow and have great success with. Hmm, yes, my, my journey did so, uh, start some years ago, uh, about 14 years ago, actually. Um, I was living in Southern California, loving life. I worked for the largest biotech company in the world on life-saving medicines. Uh, I had just bought a house and everything was great except for one nagging problem. I had this chronic acid reflux, had had it for many years. Uh, I was taking a number of different things for it, Tums and even proton pump inhibitors, not really, you know, solving the problem. And it was just a complete fluke. I mean, it, this digestive health is not, was not my field. Uh, but my older son, who was an athletic trainer at the time, talked me into buying a treadmill and going on a low carbohydrate diet. And... Two days into the diet, 
I stopped thinking about the treadmill or losing weight because my chronic acid reflux just went away. I had bought the book Protein Power by Drs. Mike and Mary Dan Eads, a great book, by the way. Um, and somehow, when I really reduced my carbohydrates, my acid reflux had gone away. And I, I just felt so curious about that. Of course, I get online and talk to Dr. Google immediately, and other people were saying the same thing. They're on a low-carb diet, their acid reflux was much better. And there was a small study at the time by uh, Will Yancey and Eric Westman and others, their associates down at Duke University. Um, just a small pilot study, but they had the same answer. Cutting carbs seemed to help acid reflux. But for me, that wasn't enough. I really got curious about this. Did carbohydrates somehow cause acid reflux? And so I started doing some research. I wanted to get to the bottom of this question because the prevailing theory was completely different. It was saying that this, these uh, muscles at the top of our stomach, the lower esophageal sphincter muscles, were relaxing. That was the problem. And trigger foods caused it and this and that. And that had been the prevailing idea for 60 years. And nobody ever challenged it. And I started thinking about digestion. I said, let me just, you know, walk through the digestive process of these three food groups, fats and proteins, and then this carbohydrate that seems to be causing my problem. And as I walked through the digestive process, when I got to the intestines, a light bulb went off in my head. Um, my own background is microbiology. I'd worked for many years in the laboratory growing bacteria. And many of those strains that I worked on uh, were gut bacteria like uh, Bacteroides fragilis, E. coli. And I knew two things about gut bacteria. They, most of them are sacrolytic. That means they prefer to eat carbohydrates. And most of them produce a lot of gas. And right then, a new way of looking at acid reflux popped into my head. I thought, what if on my high-carbohydrate diet, the SAD diet, so to speak, I was consuming so many carbohydrates that many of them were not being fully digested and absorbed, and instead, these excess carbs were feeding blooms of gas-producing bacteria in my small intestine. And this gas pressure was building up, and it was translating into my stomach intragastric pressure, and it was actually driving this acid reflux like you might imagine if you dropped a Mentos candy into a bottle of Coke. And it was that simple. And since then, I've done a lot of research, and there's actually a lot of evidence that this is actually what's going on and that the LES relaxation theory is wrong. And so that's what I talk about in my books. Uh, initially, I... I um, wrote a book called Heartburn Cured because I was just so passionate about this this uh, this idea. Uh, I wrote it late at night. I was still working at this company, self-published it. But I sent a copy to this Dr. Mike Eads, the co-author of Protein Power, the book that I had read, because he mentioned using low-carb dieting for his patients with heartburn. And so I wrote to him thinking, well, maybe he'll answer my letter. And being the kind of guy Mike is, he agreed to meet this cold-calling microbiologist, and luckily he lived nearby in Santa Barbara. I was in Thousand Oaks at the time. And over time, we became pretty good friends. We talked about uh, this idea. He, he bought into it fully, but he still probed it in a number of ways, asking a lot of questions. And one key question that he asked me was, 
is it all carbs or are some carbs easier to, to digest and not a problem? And this to me was a piercing question. So I ended up working for several more years to figure out which are these hard to digest carbs and how can you easily quantify those in any food? In other words, how can I make a diet out of this that, that uh, works only on the problematic carbs? And so I was lucky to have people like Mike Eads helping me and also Gary Taubes, the author of Good Calories, Bad Calories, in his new book, The Case Against Sugar, helped me out greatly um, because he he helped me understand the limitations on observational studies having to do with dietary fiber because I was looking at fiber and thinking, could that be part of the problem too? So long story short, I came up with this fast-tracked diet and when I started reading along the way, uh, Dr. Mark Pemintel's work and Professor John Hunter's work on SIBO and irritable bowel syndrome, I realized that what I had been proposing was essentially the same. That is, SIBO is a cause for acid reflux. So many years later, I've now published two books, Fast Track Digestion, Heartburn, and Fast Track Digestion, IBS. And uh, it can all be traced back to that one observation and just kind of doing my homework afterwards and trying to understand it. And there are so many people that are so grateful and thank you and thankful for <laughs> for you having that experience and uh, and doing everything that you've done. And it's so interesting. And I look at just how many people out there experience heartburn. And all you need to do is look on the television to see how many ads there are constantly running for heartburn tablets and and drinks and medications oh, and all the I rest. I cringe every time I see this. So do I. And I think <laughs> You know what, by the way, course. while you're on the while you're on that topic yep. though of those commercials, have you noticed when they're when they're selling Prilosec, they always show somebody eating either a slice of bacon or a turkey drumstick. And I think the message is once you're on this drug you'll be a you'll be able to eat these drumsticks and bacon without any problems. Well, those aren't the problem to begin with. Yeah. I think they know that. <laughs> yeah, wow. definitely. It, uh, it, really, it really gets my goat. And, uh, and my, um, you know, I just look around me, my immediate circle, so my friends, my family, um, people that are close to me, and it seems like so many of them are chomping down on, on these medications. And I think... It's so easy to do to do something about this. You just need to look at what's going into your digestive system in the first place that's causing this pain. Don't mask it with a with a um, pharmaceutical medication. But I could I could do a whole podcast of me well, ranting yeah. about that. <laughs> right, and and luckily I think the tables are turning because every year something new comes out. For instance, with these acid-reducing medicines, especially proton pump inhibitors, kidney problems, you know, you can't absorb B12, anemia, you can't absorb calcium and magnesium, problem after problem, it's bad for your heart, it's bad for your bones, <laughs> they're just bad for you. So more and more people now are actually reaching out to us to, to find a better mm, way. Which is great. And, and I hope that anybody that is listening to today's podcast who is um, taking any antacid or proton pump inhibitor type medication, I hope that this interview um, really helps uh, them in terms of having a bit of more of an understanding of um, where they can look elsewhere for uh, some options that might be a little bit more natural in, in helping 
calm that pain because heartburn it, it can be excruciatingly painful it's very uncomfortable I I used to experience it quite frequently prior to um, getting my SIBO diagnosis and subsequently um, getting rid of my SIBO and and now I never experience it and oh gosh it's so much better mm-hmm. now interesting yeah yeah interesting I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I. Yeah, you're one of yeah, us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I. It used to be so painful. That's terrible. I mean, it's uh, It's hard to carry on your life when you just feel that miserable. It really does impact your quality of life. Well, the thing is, I didn't know I felt miserable until I stopped feeling like that. To me, that was just my norm, <laughs> and and I'd have yes. flare-ups, and I'd know that. I mean, I'd been gluten-free for a, for you know on and off for. 10 years prior to my SIBO diagnosis. And I knew that if I ate a lot of, um, if I slipped and started eating gluten, I knew that that was pretty much an immediate trigger for heartburn. But also if I ate a lot of gluten-free products, you know, those major frankenfoods that Mm -hmm. have been Mm -hmm. made by uh, (laughs) factories where it's blending all sorts of other kind of products that don't contain gluten and I would I'd actually get worse heartburn eating that type of food if I say had a gluten-free pasta for dinner I'd mm. sit there rubbing my chest Absolutely. going Ugh, I feel miserable and there I was going but it, what's causing it I've eaten gluten-free I shouldn't be in pain it was very interesting yes yeah yep it is so um for those listeners that haven't heard of the fast track diet can you um explain to me what it is and uh, and how it works sure be glad to so um the fast track diet it's a dietary system that addresses SIBO which as you know is involved in a whole variety of conditions so we talked about acid reflux and irritable bowel syndrome but also rosacea a whole wide variety of autoimmune diseases, celiac, rheumatoid arthritis, Sjogren's, Hashimoto's, uh, and then other conditions, even fibromyalgia, interstitial cystitis, Crohn's, uh, cirrhosis, uh, people with pancreatitis, and uh, cystic fibrosis. So, and that list is far from complete. So there's a lot of people that even if you can't solve the problem, right, you can't change somebody's genes who has cystic fibrosis or or Crohn's, but you can certainly help support the SIBO part of it with a diet that um, limits these fermentable carbs. And so that's the second point about what the diet is. The fast track diet limits, but doesn't eliminate. <laughs> a lot of people write to me, am I starving my microbiota? No, you're not starving your microbiota, but it does limit the full range of fermentable carbohydrates. And I think that's a really interesting point around the complete elimination or just the reduction. And there's a lot of fear around what are we doing to, um, you know, all of those little bugs that are living in our um, digestive system and am I doing more damage? And so I think that's really interesting, um, what, exactly. that point that you've just made about reducing. Exactly. And, you know, we should make sure we come. Yeah, let's come back to that one because I think that's really an important point. Um, So it limits these fermentable carbohydrates, and it does so with a calculation called the fermentation potential. So essentially, every every serving of food depends on the type of food it is. You get this FP value. So it's really like a Weight Watchers program, but instead of calories, you have these FP points. And if you can control those every day, then you should really start feeling a lot better. Uh, the other thing that the other com- there's two more components in the in the, the approach. 
first of all, it really stresses a variety of gut-friendly behaviors and practices. A lot of people don't realize that in selecting the food, cooking or preparing the food, and how you consume the food, all three of those are really critical in determining how well they will be broken down and digested. Because when it comes to carbs, you don't want too many of them persisting if you're susceptible to these overgrowths. And then the last uh, point I wanted to make about the fast-track diet is it has a very detailed section on how to identify and address the um, variety of potential underlying causes. So you, you put it together and it's kind of like, um, you know, it's a, a three-prong approach. Limit these actual FP points, em employ these gut-friendly behaviors, and then really take a deep look for other um, underlying causes. And how important um, do you believe um, addressing or identifying the underlying cause to be in the successful um, treatment of SIBO? Well, I think it. I think, and by the way, whether you're on a diet or whether you, you know, take some herbs or antibiotics, you know, whatever you're doing, you do need to really be cognizant of what this underlying, what these underlying causes could be. Um, and there's a, you know, there's a whole variety of those that you need to be aware of. Um, for instance, uh, you know, the one you hear about all the time is motility, but now something new on the horizon is issues with e the ileocecal valve, the valve between your large and small intestine. There was a study done just a year or so ago that people with SIBO had low ileocecal valve pressure. Um, of course, anything to do with surgery or structural abnormalities, intestinal scarring, um, that can be a problem. Inflammation, either from the SIBO itself or from a GI infection, uh, deficiency in digestive enzymes, right? It might be lactose intolerance, or you might have a lo um, uh, deficiency in pancreatic enzymes. Loss of stomach acid, that's the big one you hear about all the time, even though it tends to be a minor cause in most people. Uh, immunological deficiencies, alcohol or any liver problems, it's huge because the liver... Um, works with the bacteria in your gut to regulate uh, bile acid pools. So that's a big factor. Um, a whole variety of uh, underlying genetic conditions. We talked about celiac and Crohn's, for instance, uh, cystic fibrosis, some of those. And then one that usually doesn't make most people's list that I add to my list for underlying causes. And that is quite simply the overconsumption of fermentable carbohydrates. I really think in some people, that's the problem. For me, I think that was the problem. As you get older, your digestive tract might not function quite as well as it did when you were 20, and you just might not be able to tolerate as many carbs as you once were used to eating. And so in those cases, I think if you just get used to not overdoing these fermentable carbs, you, that might be all it takes. And can you clarify what a fermentable carb is to the listeners in case somebody listening thinks, I'm not exactly sure what they are? Sure. So, you know, the, there's a whole bunch of different carbohydrates, right? But some of them are either simple carbs and they're easy to uh, digest and or absorb, such as uh, dextrose or glucose, right? That uh, sugar, it's a single sugar, so there is no digestion but it's absorbed very, very quickly from your small intestine into the bloodstream. Your body actually spends energy to get that glucose into the bloodstream. 
So that's one that's relatively uh, easy to absorb and why we um, do recommend that as one of the sweeteners on the fast-track diet because it's less likely um, to drive these kinds of, you know, SIBO reactions. <clears throat> of course, if you have a lot or if you do have all kinds of problems um, in your small intestine or you have a lot of bacteria growing up in the early part of your small intestine, even a simple sugar-like glucose might be a problem. And if you want proof for that, just look at the fact that many hospitals still use glucose to do SIBO testing with. So it's not a perfect system, but something like glucose is easier to uh, absorb and less likely to be a problem. And the same thing holds true, ironically enough, with a large, very complex carb. It's a starch called amylopectin. You know, so rices like uh, Japanese sushi rice and jasmine rice are mostly amylopectin starch. It's a light, fluffy starch with a lot of branch points. And so amylase enzyme is able to gobble it away from all these different ends. And so it breaks down to glucose very quickly. And that's why those rices have a very high glycemic index. But they also have a, a, a low fermentation potential because they're digested and absorbed relatively quickly. If you look at a different type of rice, say basmati rice, which has a much higher percentage of a, of a hard-to-digest digest starch called amylose, which is a more linear type of molecule, and the amylase enzymes need to kind of nip off uh, the ends. There's not as many ends to start digesting it from, and so it's it's slower to digest, and that's why rices that have high amylose have a lower glycemic index. Uh, like basmati rice, I think it's in the 50s somewhere, compared to um, jasmine rices, which is like 98, or um, you know, it, it, it's in it, there's a couple of different values out for it, but it's still up around 90%. Um, so the basmati and the Uncle Ben's rices are, are down in the 50s, and so you can see it's not going to digest as quickly. So if you don't have any SIBO or any problems with, you know, fermentable carbs, you know, go ahead and have some. But if you do, you might want to um, have a smaller serving size of that type of rice or switch to a jasmine uh, or a sushi rice. And that's why people would, uh, you know, can often find that um, rice can be problematic for them. It, it's the kind of rice that they're eating rather than rice as a whole, as a whole group of um, rice. <laughs> right, it, it is. And, but also how you cook it, make sure you use enough uh, water and make it, uh, you want to cook it preferably in a rice cooker so it's kind of light and fluffy. As soon as rice starts to get dried, um, you know, if everybody's gone to a uh, Thai restaurant where they had rice that was probably from yesterday, and it's been refrigerated, that builds up resistant starch. It's been dried out, that adds to resistant starch. So it's also how it's prepared. And then you want to eat smaller amounts, maybe a half a cup, not a whole cup. And you want to eat really slowly and chew really well. Because one thing we've learned in recent years is uh, people differ widely in how many gene copies they have for that enzyme amylase in your saliva. And you might be per a person that only has one or two gene copies and not have all that much amylase. And so you, ha you have to eat slow and chew really well to use the amylase you do have, where somebody else might have nine gene copies, 60% of the saliva is amylase, and they can just go through the stuff like nothing and they digest and absorb it very well. Is there a way that people can find out um, how much amylase they have? Can you test for that? Yeah, unfortunately, to my knowledge, that's really still a lab test. It's not available commercially for people to just go in and uh, see what they have. It'd be great. 
I'd probably take it mm. myself. Yeah. Oh, what a bummer. <laughs> It'd be great to know that. <laughs> and yeah, and it's really interesting talking to you about rice in particular because when I was going through um, my SIBO journey, having been gluten free for years, rice was such a staple. And I was vegetarian for seven years, so I ate a lot of grains, um, vegetarian grains, I should say. Uh, sorry, gluten free mm, grains. Um, mm. And but as soon as I commenced my SIBO treatment and I stripped out a lot of those foods, I found it really difficult to reintroduce. And, and I was following the biphasic diet by Dr. Narala Jacoby, which worked well for me. I actually hadn't, um, at that very point, I hadn't heard of your diet because I hadn't heard of SIBO. I was like, what is this thing? Um, <laughs> it, I was a complete novice to all of this. Uh, and it took me a long time to reintroduce rice back into my diet. And I found that so peculiar because I had lived off it for so many years. Mm. And yet as soon as I started addressing this um, issue that was going on in my gut, my gut just said, no, nah, we're not coping with this. This just does not work with us at this point in time. And I was eating basmati rice. And now I know that um, it had a higher fermentation um, potential. So that's that gives me an explanation. <laughs> Sure. Thank and, you for answering that question. I've sort of had sitting in the back of my mind all this time. Why was rice so problematic? <laughs> I know. It, you know, over time, though, if you uh, if you're diligent with your diet and your small intestine uh, heals and gets better, you can tolerate more larger volumes and um, these some of these uh, higher FP rices. Uh, I have a good friend, his wife is uh, Indian, and she makes the most beautiful spread of food, and the centerpiece is always a big bowl of basmati rice. So, um, you know, these days I can eat uh, a little bit more, but I don't eat too much, and I, I do chew really well and eat slowly. Um, but the first night I ever went over the house, I said, I know this is going to end badly. And, you know, two in the morning, there I woke up with terrible acid reflux, but I had a big smile on my face because it confirmed my theory. Um, but you know, you do, you do have to, um, be careful for a while in terms of reintroducing foods. Um, I think that's a good question in itself. And, and I think it's one where a lot of, um, people make a mistake. And so I think of it as four steps. Uh, first of all, you need to be very, um, restricted up front. Your diet should be restricted. Even if you have to cut out, maybe you have to cut out even the simple uh, the easy to digest rice until your symptoms are really under control. Uh, if you don't and you can follow these, you know, behaviors and, and use the higher, uh, the lower FP rice is fine. But some people might have to cut it out completely. Whatever you have to do, you have to, there's a troubleshooting section in the book that walks you through this. But you might even have to go on a ketogenic diet for a while and really cut back these, all these carbs till you're getting better. Um, and then at some point, you can start to reintroduce these foods, but you should do it very gradually and one food group at a time. Like we talked about starches, but you can make the same argument for uh, increasing the fiber, foods that contain fiber, uh, lactose. Uh, again, with lactose, you can take a lactase enzyme that will help. But you might try, uh, for instance, half of one of those little red potatoes. Those are actually um, low FP foods. They have a higher glycemic index, um, so they're lower FP. And try half. Uh, instead of like uh, a russet, which has a higher FP and the bigger potatoes, or a half a cup of jasmine rice over the same serving size of basmati, as we talked about. Um, and if you have a flare, 
and you start to have symptoms, you've gone too far and you really have to back off. Um, and then, as we've mentioned, don't forget to really embrace all of these gut-friendly behaviors and practices when, in, when introducing these foods, especially starches. I mean, it's a common mistake to reintroduce too many fermentable carbs too fast. Um, you know, I've, I've heard people say things like, okay, um, I'm going on a low FODMAP diet for two weeks, and then I really need to ramp up the fiber. It's like, that is a terrible idea. And it's probably not going to work. Mm, yeah, definitely. And, and I think the the reintroduction phase can be um, fraught with anxiety because it's um, moving into a zone where you're you're not sure what's going to happen. Um, I know for me, after six months of a pretty restricted diet, when I started reintroducing foods, there was a little bit of fear that I experienced around it. I was worried that I was going to experience painful symptoms again. I was kind of scared by that. And um, there was safety in what I knew, which was this restricted diet. I knew how I felt. I felt great on it and I didn't want to stop feeling great. Um, and so there was definitely trepidation. Do you, do you mm. see that with people that there's trepidation around adding in a higher FP food um, and the fear around what that might do to them? I do. I mean, you know, it's different for different people. Some people, I think the, the sicker they were to begin with, Probably the more they are concerned about, uh, about they don't want to end up back there, so they're more cautious. Um, but some people just throw caution to the wind, and they know, look, this is a long-term thing. If, it, if at least if you can convince people that that they have a tool belt, you know, that the diet with the these behaviors and practices and cause all of these different pieces come together, and it's essentially. If you if you can figure out, okay, I did it and it works, I'm symptom free, you've got a tool belt there. And so I don't think you have to worry so much if you fall off the wagon, especially around holidays, it happens. It happens to me sometimes. Um, but if you trust your toolkit, you know, okay, look, next, you know, on Monday, I'm going to just cut it out and, and I know I'll be feeling better. But I understand that concern. I mean, at the height of my reflux problems, um, I was beginning to suffer with um, aspiration reflux. And I mean, that will scare you out of your wits. In the middle of the night, you can't breathe. There's acid in your lungs. You think, I really did wake up one night. I was half dreaming, but I, I thought to myself, I'm dying. This is what it feels like to die. <laughs> woke up oh and gosh. started coughing and, and, and realized it was just a bad uh, case of aspirating uh, acid reflux into my lungs. Ow. That just sounds, but, yeah. that sounds really know. painful. I know. But it's, you know, those days are long behind me and I'm just, I'm, I'm very thankful that, uh, that I don't have to, you know, feel that way anymore. So yeah, like you, I want to help other people build the toolkit and, and show them that it works and then they can go off and, and it, it's easier with time. You know, people that are on the fast track diet for a while, they don't even, they don't count points anymore. They know which foods are what. They know uh, what they can eat and about how much, and they know what to do if they have some symptoms. So it does get more relaxed in time. And also your um, sensitivity uh, is reduced. If every day you can control your symptoms, your gut is healing. Mm. Yep, that's a really great point. And I'm interested in the reintroduction phase in terms of stepping up um, the FP um, level of foods. In, in what... Um, time frame do you suggest that people do that do they do something every day do they 
do something once and then wait a few days and then add something else in? What's your advice around that? Mm. Well, <laughs> for most people, they do spend, as I mentioned, a lot of time uh, being a little more stringent. Um, 20, 25 points a day, uh, you know, and in the in the books and, and also in the Fast Track Diet mobile app, there's a new app out this year. Um, it does go into how you set those points and so forth. And, the, and it is by the severity of your symptoms um, and where you fit on that continuum. And so you can look at the same uh, graph in terms of when uh, when you should increase the points. Hey, you know, my my symptoms are really kind of mild or almost gone. Okay, you can start to increase them gradually, but I'd rather hear you say they're gone. That would be the safest thing. Um, but I think the good thing about the, the diet is that um, you, it, there's no reason you can't just back off again if it starts, if you've gone a little too far. So I don't worry about it too much. Um, but honestly, I, you know how it works in these consultation programs. I end up being the coach most of the time and saying, no, no, you went too far. <laughs> back off a little bit, you know, maybe not because most people want to jump the gun and they tend to get ahead of themselves a little bit. So I think when you, when you consult with people, you end up being a bit of a coach to moderate. Yeah. And I think people also know when they have stepped over the, over the line that they'll, they, when you ask them those questions, they're like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I went too far. Yep. I went out and I went crazy and I ate an entire burger and, oh, or, yeah. you know, um, you know, I had all of these three foods that I'd just been dreaming about for yeah. so long and I just went and ate them and I yeah. really paid the price for it. <laughs> I know. And, you know, I work with people on like, well, what are your favorite foods? You know, maybe we can come up with a strategy so that you can include those and you can give up something else. Like my own love is an IPA beer. I just love it. A light beer has much fewer points, only has uh, three or four points. Um, an IPA can have a lot more. Um, and of course, if you have three of them, <laughs> forget about it. But um, sometimes I'm willing to have a couple of IPAs and and, um, and cut back on, on something else. So with regards to the fermentation potential um, threshold, how where how do people know where to start? Do they, does everybody start at the same level or can one person start at one point and another person be able to tolerate a, a higher amount each day? Yeah, sure. Well, let's talk about that. And, and by the way, just in, I think I haven't covered this. So real quick, you know, the, how do we get this FP value? Let's just go through that real quick if we Great. might. Um, you know, this is a calculation I created um, using the glycemic index and nutritional facts and the serving size for any food. Um, and the glycemic index, as you know, um, measures how quickly the carbohydrates in a food go into your bloodstream. And so it's really quite simple. I turn the equation around to measure how many carbohydrates for a specific food and serving size are persisting in the small intestine. So you know, but I mean, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, so it took me two years to do this. But um, the the bottom line is, it's a way to use um, the glycemic index, for which there's thousands of these values for all of these different foods, to actually measure the FP by turning it around. So that's what the calculation is. Um, as far as the threshold, as I mentioned, there are guidelines in the book and the app. And your, your limits will initially be set by your own symptoms. So essentially, it's like, do I have mild or almost no, just a few symptoms? Then, you know, that your limit might be way up near 40 or 45 FP. 
But chances are most of the people that'll spend eight bucks on the app, they, they're not mild. They're having, you know, having more problems and they want, uh, they will need something that's more strict. So in that case, they might be 25 to 30 points a day. And people with real severe symptoms, I'd say 20 or even less. Um, and again, go right into the troubleshooting sections because you might have to do some additional things and maybe some supplements, you know, some digestive enzymes, uh, could be a stomach acid issue, betaine. So you might have to go into the troubleshooting section, but uh, the more uh, uh, significant your symptoms are, the more you need to cut these FP points mm. in a nutshell. Mm. And is it easy for people to determine the FP potential of a food um like how would they go about doing it? Um, I had uh, I put a call out to my community um, to say that you were coming on the show and did they have any questions? And I had a, a lovely guy from Brazil um, reach out and say to me, "There's a lot of foods here that I don't I don't know how to calculate these. We don't have a lot of nutritional information on our foods here. How do I go about calculating that?" Mm. So it would be great if you're mm. able to answer that question um, on how to mm -hmm. calculate the FP potential. Sure. Um, well. The mobile app does have a built-in calculator for FP. And there's also a free calculator on digestivehealthinstitute.org uh, website. So in fact, if you just Google FP calculator, boom, you'll go right there. And so you can plug these values in yourself, um, but you will need the serving size and you'll need the nutritional facts. So you need the total carbs, you need how much dietary fiber is there, and if there are any added sugar alcohols, like certain um, sugar-free ice creams, for instance, you need to plug those in. And then you need to plug in a glycemic index value, and you hit calculate and get the FP. Now, in some cases, uh, you will have a food that hasn't been tested for the glycemic index, right? And so what do you do there? And so there's a couple of things you can do. For foods that are low-carb foods, so green, any kind of green leafy vegetables, uh, you know, the app is like 150 vegetables listed in their FP values anyway. But if you find a vegetable that's not on there and it's a lower-carb vegetable, the you can use the average glycemic index for these vegetables, which is about 50 or 55, something like that, um, or just a, a, use 50. And, the, and it's not that critical because, first of all, that's the average for vegetables. But also, um, the glycemic index matters less when there's fewer carbohydrates there. So if you wanted to do that with um, a starch, and that's why I do put values in for many different potatoes and rices and all of these different starches, because when you have a high-carb starch, that glycemic index value is important. It's important to know whether it's 85 or 45 because that will change the FP significantly. So um, if you have a starch that's not in there, um, you, can, you can try putting in 50 just to be a little on the conservative side. And then at that point, you might have to just experiment yourself and try some, use all the pro-digestion um, uh, practices that we talked about, and then see how you feel. So, you know, your, your symptoms will become your own barometer at some point. Mm, and once you start becoming in tune with your body, it's amazing how um, quickly our bodies give us signals. It's quite 
incredible. I was never in tune with my body. And then when I started to really listen to it, I was like, oh, you tell me what you feel when I do a certain thing. Great. Okay. I now have a barometer for this. <laughs> Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I know, it's great. And, you know, I think as we get older, we do that more more often, probably because when we're young, we're just so strong and healthy, nothing bothers us. <laughs> we can take a lot of abuse. Exactly. And uh, and other things that you never knew were, were actually um, symptomatic of the foods you were consuming, um, things like aches and pains or headaches or, you know, things that don't involve the digestive area um, uh, were really interesting to me. I could see that I would get a dull ache in my head um, with certain foods, um, which I only started to notice when I was dealing with my SIBO. And I realized that um, you know, or I might get a bit congested in my sinuses and I was like, oh, oh my gosh, this is totally mm, related to what I'm eating. And I could then narrow it down to, okay, it's this specific item that I have consumed that is causing that problem, um, which was fascinating because I'd never felt that before. Sure. Yeah. In fact, it, re it reminds me when you said sinuses, uh, you know, there's a lot of people these days that are struggling with laryngopharyngeal reflux, LPR. They get these symptoms, uh, throat, breathing, sinuses, eustachian tubes, uh, lump in the throat, um, hard time swallowing. And they'll go to the doctor who will say, well, uh, what I'm concluding at this point is you have LPR. So I'm writing you a script for proton pump inhibitor. And these PPIs neutralize, uh, not neutralize, they stop your, your stomach from actually making uh, any stomach acid. Um, but there uh, have been some studies, and I, and I just published a blog on LPR and why proton pump inhibitors don't work uh, recently. So also it's on the digestivehealthinstitute.org. But um, it turns out that they've done a number of studies and even some uh, fairly complex meta-analyses, and PPIs don't work at all for LPR. And so what what does work though is if you can stop reflux itself. And it's the same situation with asthma. They did huge studies, a thousand kids, hospitals all over the US called the SARA study to look at how Nexium would help kids with asthma because they knew it was related to reflux. That That's well established. 80% of kids with asthma have chronic acid reflux. So they figured, hey, we have another market for Nexium. Let's go for it. Big study did not help one single bit. And that and they concluded from that study, hundred over 100 authors on that paper, they concluded that therefore acid reflux is not a cause or a contributing factor to asthma. And that conclusion is completely wrong. And here's why. If you give people a fundoplication operator, operation, I'm not, I'm not recommending this because there's a lot of other issues with that procedure, but you tighten up the LES, this, this uh, set of muscles on top of your stomach surgically, that does improve asthma. 
And so it is something in the reflux, but it's not the acid component. But there's also bile, there's bacteria, there's uh, enzymes, pepsins and pancreatic enzymes. So, but, but Nexium isn't the answer because acid is not the only problem. So, off, uh, you know, everywhere I turn, I feel like there's a new book I need to write. Fast track diet for asthma. Definitely. <laughs> you know, because the secret is in stopping the reflux. And I just wish, you know, that, that message would ring clear because it's based in the science. Why would a fund application operation help if the reflux wasn't a problem? Why do 80% of kids with asthma have, as, have uh, acid reflux? Is the asthma causing the acid reflux? No. <laughs> it's the other way around. I can see many, many more books coming out of you in the future years. <laughs> and I look forward to all of them. <laughs> um, I don't know. Just backtracking a little bit around um, the FP for a food and the difference that the um, value is depending on the way that the food is. So say in its raw state versus a cooked state versus say a pureed state or a juiced state, does it change um, according to how that food is prepared and what state it's in? Thank you for asking that question. (laughs) (laughs) uh, So many people ask this question. So the, the, the better I can get this answer out there, the easier it will be. Um, Okay cooking. When you when you measure out raw veggies, the FP will either be the same or slightly lower when you cook it. It will never be higher. That's one point. Right? And and here's an example. It's in the uh, the book. Um, one cup of cooked uh, one cup of raw carrots. Who we did a whole cup of raw carrots? Nobody, but <laughs> that's our example. One cup of raw carrots has 11 FP points raw. If you cook them, it's nine FP points. So not a not a big difference, right? But it's a little bit less when you cook them. Now, here's where it gets a little complicated. Not real complicated, but just a little bit more. How about leafy green vegetables? When you cook those, they condense quite a bit, right? You take a cup of spinach and cook it. It doesn't look like much anymore, right? And so that's confused a lot of people. One cup of cooked spinach. So if you cook it and then measure your cupful, that has five FP points. But if you take one cup of raw spinach, it's only one FP. And that's because when you a cook of a cup of <laughs> cooked spinach, you have five times as much spinach there. And that's the reason that I included some examples of cooked veggies in the book and in the app because I wanted people to see the difference. As long as you measure everything raw, you're good to go. But if you want to measure some things cooked, you could look at some of those examples. It will change for, for the vegetables that get a lot more condensed. Mm, that's great. Yeah, it does totally. And and so if someone was to do, you know, green smoothies uh, or green juices are just all the rage at the moment and everyone's like, oh, I've had my green juice because it's so healthy. Um, If someone is wanting to or is, you know, feels that they need to include a a green juice into their diet, is your recommendation that they measure out the, um, the raw vegetables work out the FP for them and then they juice them and then they, they know what that is? Or does the process of juicing change the FP? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, 
what you said. I think to be on the safe side, uh, select the vegetables and or fruit you're going to put in your juice. Um, add up the FPs, that's, that's your FP. Now, when you use a, a juicer, some of the insoluble fiber will, will end up not in the juice, right? And so there's a little bit of FP there, but a lot of the fermentable carbs are going to be in the soluble fiber fraction and they will be in the juice. Um, so my advice is, as you said, is just to count the FP and, and recognize that the actual FP might be slightly less. Um, now, let me qualify that for a minute. There's something about turning vegetables into juice, for me at least, that gives me a stronger reaction. And, and I'm not sure why, uh, but when I, it, I'm not a big juicer and I don't really care for the taste, but if somebody makes juice and I have more than a shot, I'll get loose stools. So for me, it has a very powerful effect and other people, they might be fine, but it's just a, something to keep in mind, my, my N of one observation there. Well, I can add to that. Uh, there's an observation of two because I feel exactly the same. It really has a very powerful impact. I feel um, a very immediate impact on my blood sugar. I feel I'm very sensitive to sugars. I can feel them hit my bloodstream. Um, and so even the sugars from vegetables, even if I'm not using much fruit or any fruit at all, I can feel quite zooped up from um, what's come through because my system obviously must um, absorb it pretty quickly and it can have a pretty powerful impact on my um, – it can cause me some diarrhea as well. And um, – if I was just to eat those vegetables in their whole form rather than a juiced form, I wouldn't have that experience with them. So it is there is something in that process that uh, has an impact, which is interesting. Yeah, you're, you're in a way you're skipping part of the digestive process by juicing them. You know, all the, the stomach mm. churning things around, all you're skipping some of that, and so it's going to present differently. But you know, the rule yeah. of thumb, I think, for now is just add up the FP uh, FP values and. And uh, hey, you'll know if you have a bad reaction. Yeah, and and I think that the the message that's really coming through is that um, you know working out what works for you as an individual, rather than looking at you know what's my favourite blogger talking about you know green smoothies or juices, and you know but really determining what your system. Um, is happy with at this point in time, what makes you feel good rather than what you're being told in the media that you should be doing and and, uh, and really tailoring it to your own personal needs. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, the other rule of thumb that I really uh, live by is less is more. You know, we, especially with the marketing machine that's out there, they, they we need more of everything according to these ads. And people are trying to sell stuff. I get it. But but really, less is more. Uh, there's been there was a study out by uh, Christina Riemley in uh, Austria a few years ago, and uh, she found that uh, people fasting, when they fasted, their gut microbiota became more diverse. Which is interesting, right? Mm. You always think of the mantra, mm. no, you need more prebiotics and more fiber or these poor bacteria are going to die. I really think a diverse um, diet, and that's why we, we actually have a protocol built around um, fresh herbs and fresh low FP vegetables and uh, low FP uh, lacto-fermented uh, vegetables. 
suit, we're not adding a lot of fermentable material, but we're still challenging uh, many different microbes because different microbes participate whenever new molecules come along. And so these, you have plenty of microbes in your gut that might be kicking along at very low numbers, maybe a couple of hundred to a thousand cells. But they're there when they're needed, when they're called into action. And by diversifying your, your diet, I think you can really help with that. Another reason I have a nice organic garden every summer and try to eat a lot of low, low FP, lower carb, green leafy vegetables to, to keep challenging my microbiota, but not overdo it. So, yeah, less is more thing. Yeah, and it's really interesting you talk about fasting because since coming through SIBO and once I um, tested negative for it, I started, um, I was very interested in fasting and had done a lot of reading on it. I'm actually, I've got a... um, a, a whole podcast just on fasting, intermittent fasting coming up. Oh, wow. um, nice. But I, I have started um, fasting two days a week and also just reducing the load and you know, reducing my meal sizes, being really careful of the types of foods that I eat. So organic where possible, um, pasture-fed or grass-fed um, meat, uh, hormone-free, all of that stuff. And I have learned I don't need to eat nearly as much as I thought I used to. And I can often go, um, you know, I can fast on, I'm on a fasting day today actually, and I'm absolutely fine. And in fact, I feel incredible for it. And on the days that I've fasted, I have so much energy and I feel amazing. And it seems counterintuitive. You feel that you should be weak and lethargic, but I have done some of my best um, sort of movement and exercise sessions at the end of a fast day. And I feel such great mental clarity and my gut feels great, even though it feels good these days, but it feels even better. So it's a really, it's so interesting and, um, and I'm fascinated about oh, fasting so anyway. I mean, I, yeah. I, I would expect your gut to feel better. I'm just curious. So how long do you fast for? So I have dinner. Um, so I fast on Mondays and Wednesdays. I have dinner on a Sunday night, which is um, a protein and vegetable meal. I don't use any um, rice or any carbohydrates because I find that if I do fasting is very difficult the next day. It really impacts my blood sugar levels. So I'll have, say, chicken or um, some fish or some red meat and a big nice green leaf, leafy salad on the Sunday night. I then don't eat again um, other than consuming water and maybe some herbal tea and I won't eat again until dinner on the Monday night. And then on the Tuesday, I often don't eat again till lunchtime. I train in the morning, do quite a heavy, um, intense training session and then I'll have a really healthy, you know, protein and vegetables um, lunch on Tuesday. I'll have dinner on Tuesday and then I won't eat again until Wednesday dinner. And that's my routine. Um, and I feel awesome for it. Mm. It's It's been um, quite incredible how much of a difference it has had on me. And my partner does the same. Um, he feels great on it. So we're, we've kind of got this little routine mm. going now. And, um, and every now and then, you know, you might have a day where fasting becomes a little difficult, especially if you're in an environment where there's a lot of food around. If somebody's bought delicious looking food and they're eating next to you and you're like oh it just looks yeah. so good uh but we we use yeah. each other as support and i'll text him and say I should help i'm really hungry i should try that <laughs> you know i'm halfway there i generally never eat breakfast most days i really yep. won't eat anything until lunch except for maybe a small handful of nuts 
that's that's every mm-hmm. day. But I never really tried these long fasts. I don't know how I do. I have to, I guess, try it and see. Mm, yeah. Well, I used to be a constant grazer. I could not go more than two to three hours without eating something. I had terrible blood sugar highs and lows, um, even though I wasn't eating what I considered a high sugar diet, but I had carbohydrates in my diet, rice and things like that. Um, and I just would get so shaky and weak and I'd feel mm. awful. But um, when I moved to a more kind of green veg and, and lots of vegetables and and protein and fat, good quality um, mm-hmm. animal fats and um, plant-based fats, nuts and seeds. Mm-hmm. I moved to that way of eating. My gosh, you know, my blood sugar really stabilized and I now have, I, I can now do it. And um, and the other thing that was really interesting to me was that I stopped getting hangry. I used to be a terrible, angry, hungry person. Mm-hmm. And now the only thing I feel is that my stomach just feels empty, but it doesn't even feel that hungry I can often get to dinner time and think "Mm, I don't necessarily need to eat this meal I'm doing it because I've chosen to but and one day I will go for a full day and and do a fast for a full day and just see how that feels Mm. um I'm very interested in the the longer term fasts sounds like you're somewhat fat adapted which is the way I like to live as well. Yeah. And I think that's an, an easy way to avoid feeling very hungry if you consume good, healthy fats along the way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, moving on in terms of just the foods, and this is um, something that I know causes a lot of confusion with people, that you do have some foods on your um, on your list that seem to cause unnecessary <laughs> anger with people, things like uh, chocolate bars. <laughs> people are like, why is that listed? That shouldn't be on there. Oh, my God, what am I doing? I'm supposed to be eating healthily. Um, can you explain why some of those foods have appeared on your list? I can. <laughs> it's funny. Somebody <laughs> just asked me a question uh, the other day about um, Skittles. So, uh, yes, <laughs> let's jump into that. So here's why I did that. All right, the the FP tables, they include foods that are on the market, and these are the foods people eat, and I want them to have the data. But I also want people to know that many of these foods, in addition to being bad for you, they may contribute to your daily FP limits. And it's one more reason not to eat them. But you mentioned chocolate. Yeah. Who can who can resist an occasional piece of chocolate? I can't. I'd like to know the FP. So where do you draw the line and say, you know, hey, we're not putting anything on here unless it passes our test for what's a healthy diet. That's not I try not to be judgmental. I wanted to develop this diet. Uh, I don't decide what the FP values are. It's a calculation. I try to do a good representation of food that's in the market. I want people to know. I want them to have the information. And so if somebody thinks I'm unhealthy because a Snicker bars is in the table, say, you know, get over it. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's a really great explanation. I wouldn't eat a Snicker bar, but it has a lot of FP points. Some people might need to know that. Exactly. And I think that's great. It's a great explanation that it's food that's commonly available and commonly eaten. Um, and it's great to just, you know, to know your FP values, um, whatever the food is. Exactly. Um, you use uh, the fast track diet uh, with SIBO. And I'd love for you to talk about your experience of um, 
how it works for people with SIBO and some of the results that you see. Mm. Well, you know, I personally have been eating this way uh, for about five years. As you know, I told you my story. Uh, 14 years ago, I learned about a low-carb diet, and now I'm eating uh, essentially according to the fast-track diet five years, and it completely controls my symptoms of acid reflux as well as occasional bloating and cramping. So, but I mean, that's me. <laughs> it's, you know, it's my book. I'm going to say that anyway. But what I'm really interested in is the is uh, what other people are saying. So we use a customized version of the fast track diet in a consultation program with a major focus on these behaviors and the underlying causes. So we've had good success. Uh, but you need to look at the reviews. Um, there's a lot of reviews on digestivehealthinstitute.org, the website, but also uh, Amazon reviews and re- and reviews for the uh, iTunes and, and um, uh, Google app. So people can read that. And then I just saw something is interesting. There's a video review of somebody that went on the fast track diet for a year with no drugs, no antibiotics. It's on the SIBO support group on Facebook. So if uh, people want to join that group, they can check out that video. I think that was really interesting and worth uh, watching. Mm. And of course, while they're on Facebook, don't forget to join the Fast Track Diet Facebook group. Exactly. I did see that if that video very recently and that was that was interesting. One of the things that um, also causes quite a lot of confusion and angst amongst some of the SIBOers is when they compare foods on the Fast Track Diet to other diets that are commonly used with SIBO, such as the low FODMAP diet, um, um, or the biphasic diet or the SIBO um, diet. Uh, can you just talk to to those people that are going, but on this diet, it's low, and on this diet, it's saying to avoid, what do I do? I'm so confused. Um, what's your advice to yes, those people? Yes, great question. So, uh, you know, many of the diets out there for SIBO are more along the lines of an elimination diet, right? Hey, this food has FODMAPs in it. You better just avoid it. Okay, I'm going to avoid it. But Again, the fast track diet is a different approach based on this point system. So it's not an elimination diet, and no food is illegal. Uh, But it's quantitative, and each food is rated based on the amount of fermentable carbs per serving. So let's look at some of these examples that come up. A lot of people talk about garlic and onions. Let's, Let's look at garlic, right? Both of these foods, garlic and onions, contain FODMAP in the form of FOS, or fructose oligosaccharide. And that's a a soluble fiber, right? Considered a prebiotic. So I get it. It's a FODMAP. You know, you got to be careful with this. But let I I look at how much you're going to be using, right? If you use a few cloves of garlic in your stir fry, a few cloves of garlic only come to about I don't know eight eight to ten grams. And then when you actually ask how much of that is this fructose oligosaccharide, it's only a couple of grams. So it's a couple of FP points. And so that's what it is. That's what it is in my calculation. And that's what I publish. If somebody feels that, oh, it doesn't matter. I just, I I literally can't have garlic. Okay. You don't have to have it, but the FP value for a few cloves of garlic is between two and three. If that closer to two, I think. So, if you, you know, if you want to eat a whole garlic bulb yourself, well, you, yeah, it's going to add more, more FP. But uh, so it's really how much of it are you consuming? And so so our diet is moving in a different direction. And it's really a quantitative approach where nothing's off limits. But 
it's very important to control your overall daily FP points. I was doing an interview just uh, earlier this week with Dr. Jason Klopp, who's based in Vancouver, Canada, and we were talking around the psychology of the um, classifications of foods on some of these diets in terms like illegal and banned and avoid, which when I look at them as a word are very strong, powerful words and negative words. And we were discussing what impact does that have psychologically around the perception of food? Um, Because I'm with you. I don't think that any one food is bad, it's just that we might not be able to tolerate it at the moment, or we might have another condition that um, means that we really aren't very good at digesting it, um, or we've got a disease like celiac disease, and, and you know, from a health perspective, we need to avoid gluten. Um, but I think that I really like what you say about it's, um, it's you know, no food is banned, that it's just around the amount that you eat and how much you can tolerate. And I think that um, it's important that we... we that us, anyone in the health space and the food space is thinking about the psychological impact we're having about um, when we're talking about food and how we're describing it to people because food is our nourishing um, life support. Without food, we're not here. Oh, I mean, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, adequate nutrition is, is a key for a long, healthy life, right? But a lot of people trying things in these diet circles – um, I think what happens is sometimes they save tidbits from one diet or several different diets, or they go on a hybrid diet because they don't they know that this and that bothers them. But what happens is that can lead to orthorexia in some people where they're literally not getting adequate nutrition. Uh, I mean, in some of the stories, it's a little frightening. You know, hey, I can only eat cooked lettuce and bone broth. Uh oh, <laughs> you know, that's that's concerning. Um, And so what is adequate nutrition? I mean, my view is, first of all, the Western diet contains way too many carbs, which our body doesn't even need. And the other problem is this global fat phobia, phobia that others have covered. But I mean, it's fueled by this Ansel Keys diet heart hypothesis, which favors seed oils over saturated fat cholesterol. Uh, In fact, I'm I'm actually reading The Big Fat Surprise by Nina Nina Teicholz right now, which is just eye-opening, as well as the work of Gary Taubes, Mike Eads, uh, Richard Feynman. These are the people that have helped educate me a little bit in this area. Uh, But in terms of gut health, there's just no question in my mind. There's too many fermentable carbs are overfeeding our gut microbiota, leading to these huge numbers. We're talking about with functional gastrointestinal disorders, and the other list of SIBO-related conditions, if you add all those up, and Alison Seebecker, your friend Alison had done that at one point, I think she came up to something like 100 to 150 million, and I get a similar number, and that's just the U.S. So there's a lot of people hurting, and I really feel this marketing mantra for more fiber and more prebiotics, it's, it's hurting, not helping. Mm, it is. And uh, us marketers, I'm a marketer by trade. It's what I went to university and studied 20 years ago. And there's, you know, marketers of the world over have a lot to answer for on their promotions of, uh, you know, promoting these messages that aren't, um, haven't been helpful for us. Uh, so I apologize on behalf of marketers for, for what, what they've done. Well, they're usually in charge. Yeah. Um, one question I get asked a lot by people is, can diet alone cure SIBO? And I'd love to know your thoughts on that um, or whether we do need to be using antibiotics or herbs or supplements um, in conjunction with diet. 
Yeah, it's a big question. And by the way, I just wrote a blog on that last week. It's called SIBO Treatments, Antibiotic Versus Diet. It's on the uh, digestivehealthinstitute.org site. People can read that. But a couple and of I've got links to all of the things we've talked about today um, in the show notes. So just oh, head there um, uh, and uh, I'll put the links um, there for everybody. Yep, good. So a couple of points. Um, whether you use antibiotics or diet or some combination of that, I mean, you do need to look at, identify and address any specific underlying causes that might be relevant for you. So um, that's, I think, no matter what you do, that you're going to have to look at that. Um, and antibiotics, I'm not against them. Believe it or not, I've worked in the pharmaceutical industry for 20 years, and one of my jobs for many years was developing an new antibiotics. I worked on the development of Cipro. I've studied antibiotic resistance in bacteria in the lab for many years. That was all I did, and I loved it. And these antibiotics save lives. I mean, they're wonderful. And even for SIBO, there are cases where um, they're appropriate. Uh, if you have, uh, you know, a, a significant uh, issue with SIBO, where uh, you're suffering from, oh, I don't know, the inability to digest fats, you, um, uh, you know, everything else has failed, uh, you have uncontrolled weight loss, failure to thrive, anemia, you know, all of these things that can occur, bone pain or even fractures, severe autoimmune reactions, an antibiotic could be at some point appropriate. But even in those situations, I really do think diet should be uh, part of the solution. And so, but let's just look at antibiotics for a second, whether it's herbal, synthetic, fungal, or bacterial, right? Our first antibiotics came from fungi. Remember, remember the penicillin story. Bacteria produce them herbs, you can get them from herbs, or you can make them in the lab. But they're all the same in, in one regard, right? It's kind of a, these are a quick fix for SIBO. You pop the pill and some people notice an improvement in symptoms. Others don't. But when you look at some of the larger well-controlled studies, like for instance, the target studies that were used to register rifaximin with the FDA for IBS, 42 people, 42 percent of people responded. Sounds good, right? compared to 30 people in the placebo group. So there was a 10% net response. And the other problem with antibiotics is there's no evidence that the response is durable. They haven't studied them long enough. There's just no evidence for it. Now, many people require retreatment with a success rate. And, and there was a target one, two, and three study done. So you look at all three of those. Uh, retreatment, the success rate drops to 33% versus 25 placebo. So again, it's not super great. I, I, I encourage people to read that article where I get into that a little bit more. On top of that, significant uh, potential side effects and health risks, particularly for some antibiotics. Neomycin is a favorite uh, one people have now for you know methane-predominant SIBO, but that can be a dangerous antibiotic. You have to be careful. Uh, bacterial resistance, huge problem. I spent a lot of time working on this. Um, it's, it's out of control right now. Things like methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteriaceae like uh, uh, pathogenic E. coli and Klebsiella. There's a million infections in the U.S. every year from bacteria that are resistant to these antibiotics, resulting in 23,000 deaths, and it's getting worse. The last point about antibiotics is they're a shotgun approach. They kill or inhibit the good as well as the bad bacteria. There's no doubt. It's, they don't just kill the bad ones. 
and they deplete the protective strains, increasing susceptibility to various other gut pathogens. C. diff, every antibiotic carries a risk of C. diff. And there's a rationale for that too, because here you are killing off all of your um, resident bacteria. So there's, and they normally ferment the carbs, right? So they're going away. And meanwhile, you, if you don't change your diet, in fact, some people are eating more carbs when they do this, there's more carbohydrates there for pathogens like Salmonella or Clostridia difficile to become established. So I really think they should reserve those for when there's a, a more serious form of SIBO. On the other hand, dietary changes, they do provide a durable response. There's been studies on lactose intolerance. Avoiding lactose is durable, even when they looked five years out, and there's no resistance. A study on uh, fructose uh, intolerance showed uh, avoiding fructose was durable after a year. They looked out a year. So there's a durable response. Here's the only issue I see with a, a lot of the diets. We're still working to really fully refine these diets. And I think the biggest problem is that, that then these diets are not restricting the full range of fermentable carbohydrates. That's what we identify in the fast-track diet. And believe it or not, it's supported by the textbook of primary and acute care medicine. This is a textbook used to train uh, doctors. Right? Page 1192, look it up in any library. It's a chapter on intestinal gas complaints, right? And that's what's driving these problems. And, th and I quote, dietary alterations to reduce intestinal gas require elimination, we use reduction, <laughs> they say elimination of most of the foods in table one. What are those foods in table one? Sugar alcohols, fructose and its oligosaccharides, resistant starch, fiber, and lactose. There it is. I predict that one day, and hopefully not too long in the future, science-based diets that limit fermentable carbohydrates will be the first line of therapy for treating SIBO. I, I honestly believe that. Mm, yeah, I think that uh, there's, there's so much we can do around our nutrition um, rather than popping a pill. Couldn't agree more. And eating for health. I really hope that eating for health, like you say, um, becomes the new way of treatment rather than uh, taking a few drugs here and there and hoping for the best and not changing anything else. Exactly. Yeah. Um, a final question I have is around weight loss and weight gain. Um, people seem to experience one or the other when it comes to SIBO. They, they either become very thin and quite undernourished or they find, and I was this person, they find that they're gaining weight so rapidly and finding it very difficult to take off. Do you see anything with that, with the fast track diet, um, with the people that are following the diet around what happens with their weight? Yeah, we do get uh, both uh, groups of people. Um, and I do track weight when we, when we work with people. Um, but for every person I have that has a problem uh, losing weight, I probably have three that have uh, trouble maintaining weight. So I, I think that's where the, the biggest problem is. Mm, it is. And that's something. In fact, I just, <laughs> I don't know why I keep saying this. I, I guess I had a rash of blogs. I just did a blog on that um, uh, about a week or so ago on how to maintain weight uh, when you have SIBO. So again, it's on the same site. People can find that and read about it. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. And it's distressing. Anyone that is either losing weight rapidly or they're gaining weight rapidly, whatever whatever end of the spectrum you're in it's 
very um, demoralizing because you're thinking, I'm not eating anything that should be making me fat <laughs> or, you know, super skinny. What What's happening? This is so unfair. And, and particularly around um, the weight gain side of things, there's so much pressure, particularly for women around how to look and you must be thin and you must, you know, look a certain way. And so when suddenly you put on two or three or four dress sizes in a matter of weeks, um, it's it is such a psychological yeah. blow it on um, and you know, know some of that can be bloating distension so of mm. course I think that's one of the first things that usually improves mm. yeah when you control SEMO. now you are an absolutely prolific writer um, what's coming up in the, what's next for you uh, it sounds like <laughs> you could definitely be writing a whole bunch of new books that we've <laughs> talked about today <laughs> I, I did have some, uh, you know, pretty significant plans for book writing, but, uh, you know, to get things done, I've had to set up a project schedule and, and limit myself to what's going on. So we were involved in a collab, some collaborative work in the clinic. I have another book uh, that we're working on, further development on the mobile app, and we're working on some kind of online program. So there's a lot going on, but on a, on a, a lighter note, I will be traveling to Japan for business and vacation in early April. So I'm looking forward to that. Oh, wonderful. Uh, yeah, Japan's great. I love that country. So I hope you have a wonderful time there. Yeah. Dr. Norm Robillard, it has been such an honour and a pleasure to have you on the Healthy Gut Podcast today. I have learned a lot and I'm sure my listeners have as well. Um, you know, we have mentioned your website many times, but just again, anyone that missed it, what's the best way for someone to reach out and connect with you or follow the work that you're doing? Yes, uh, Digestive Health Institute. Dot org, and they can visit us at the Fast Tracked Diet official Facebook group on Facebook. Wonderful. Once again, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute joy to have you here today. Thank you for having me, Rebecca. Wow. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode, episode 18 with Dr. Norm Robillard. I know I had thoroughly enjoyed that conversation with him and I learned a lot, so I hope that you did too. If you would like to access the show notes or a full transcription of today's episode, all you need to do is head to thehealthygut.co forward slash FTD, standing for Fast Track Diet. And on the link there, you will also get all of the links that uh, Norm referenced in today's interview. So he shared a wealth of information and plenty of other resources that you can go and look up, including the FP calculator, which is very useful if you're following this diet. So just head to thehealthygut.co forward slash FTD. I absolutely love hearing your feedback on the show, so don't forget to leave us a rating and review in iTunes or the app that you use to listen to this podcast. And it really does help those people out there who are searching for information on gut health to know that this is the right podcast for them. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest and Google+. Just search for The Healthy Gut. 
Coming up on next week's show, we're joined by Dr. Whitney Hayes, who is a naturopathic doctor based in Portland, Oregon, who has a lot of expertise in working with people with SIBO. And she talks to me around how she loves to join the forces of both Eastern and Western medicine when it comes to treating what can be often a very difficult and chronic condition. So join me next week for episode 19 with Dr. Whitney Hayes. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. And as we are fully funding this podcast, if you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast so that we can continue to bring you future episodes, all you need to do is make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Belinda Coombs for the production, editing and original music score of this podcast. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening.